Welcome to the Awakening Podcast. This episode was actually taken from the speaking podcast, but because it was so relevant, I thought I'll include it in the Awakening Podcast. We cover Maria Montessori and the Montessori method, and we also discuss NLP. And because I've exposed a lot about the education system, I think it's actually very important. And we also talk about the power of words towards children. So I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to the Speaking Podcast. You can find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com. We're also on BitChute and YouTube, and you'll find the links in the podcast description. I also forward a podcast, The Crypto, Meditation, Learn Polish, and The Awakening, and all can be found on rightcon.com. Today, my guest, originally from Germany, now in the States, Brigitte. I'm, I'm not even going to, I tried it. You can do it. You'll speak it and it'll sound so much. Hoofle. It sounds so much beautiful when you do it and I don't want it, you know. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Roy, for having me. It's it's fun. And you know what? I, I always think that amongst Europeans, you, at least Europeans get my name right, but I guess not. And it's totally fine. <laughs> And I was watching your YouTube channel and you introduced yourself and I practiced it a few days, but it, yeah, it's just, you know yourself, you get sidetracked doing other things and I go back and I look at it, how it's pronounced instead of writing it, how I actually would say it. And I didn't do that this time. So, but at least now she might let the audience know what you're up to. Yes. So what am I up to? My name is Brigitte Höfele. Uh, when I introduce myself um, in the English speaking world, people say, well, but, you know, especially here in the United States, well, that's not American. Well, no, it's not. And um, I was born and raised in Germany and am now um, living the American dream. Moved in 2004 with my little toddler daughter and my husband to the United States to build a Montessori school because I always wanted to go to Montessori school. Being an educator myself, I thought this is incredible school. Um, I want to have that for my children. So we did that. And the majority of my family said, oh, my gosh, Brigitte, you are absolutely crazy. What are you doing? Of course, they're saying all of that in German. What are you what are you doing? What if it doesn't work? And I said, yeah, but what if it works? And, um, you know, I'm not a person that looks at the glass half empty. I'm always a oh, the glass might be coming to an empty, how can we fill it? And, and of course, looking at the, the space that is in the glass to be an opportunity to, to be filled with even more good stuff. So there was a lot of feedback along the way as I was crossing cultures with a little toddler and my husband. Um, my husband was a journalist at the time. I was an educator. And uh, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do that. And uh, amongst building the business, I then became pregnant again and had our second daughter who was born in the U.S. And, uh, you know, now our kids are 16 and 19 and our 19 year old just moved back to Berlin. So you never know what you, you know, what you do and, and what you're building it for. All I can say is I'm glad that our children went through the Montessori uh, programs and have a great education. And I know that they are set up for success. And yeah, I couldn't be more proud. So there's a proud mama speaking. But in the midst of that, Roy, building my business, you know, there were there were some hard times. 2008 here in the U.S., the whole you know real estate bubble bursted and It's a private school that I have, and most of the kids that came to my school were children from realtors or mortgage lenders or, you know, insurance people. And from one day to the next, they pulled their children out of my school because they couldn't pay the tuition because they didn't know what's going to happen. People lost their money overnight, and I thought, man, what am I going to do? Am I going to, am I also going to have to quit? my job, quit my business, close the doors, or am I going to persevere? And I did some reading and some studies in that time. And I, and I saw that highly successful companies usually come out on the other end of a pandemic, of a bubble burst, of a some sort of crisis, because that when they persevere through it, that's when they become stronger. And uh, through that, I poured a lot of just 
goodness and learning into myself and into my staff. And we came out of it. And now through the pandemic, we actually grew to 125 students. So that's what I'm up to. I own two educational facilities and I love what I do. Excellent. Love it. Love it. And which, because I know that you've done a lot of uh, studies as well. So what's what you've, is it three degrees that you've got? I have a marketing degree and I have an education uh, science and social pedagogy degree. I, I love to build. I love uh, to do sales. I love to continue to uh, pour into myself and because I think leaders are learners. So when I stop learning, I start dying and that would be really sad. So I like to continue to, to learn and um, educate myself. I have a diploma in the Montessori method from ages three months all the way to um, middle school. I have, I'm a grandmaster of neurolinguistic programming, but all that to say is not to toot my own horn, but really to say, man, if you're a leader, and I'm pretty sure that your listeners are leaders, continue to pour into yourself because there's still so, I think we only use about eight to 10% of our brain of the capacity that we could actually use it. And it's sad that people are not wanting to learn more. And I think that's when they tune into your podcast to learn more as well. Absolutely. I mean, I'm continuously learning. I'm doing courses. I, I mean, I read average about 100 books. I just want to learn more and more. And the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know and I need to learn more. You know, I'm listening to podcasts all the time when I'm commuting as well. And it's like, so, yeah, I think, yeah, you're, you're, like what you said, you know, if you're not learning, you're dying. I can, you know, you should never, like the amount of people that you meet that they won't even read one book after they leave school. You're like, I like my child, now my youngest child. He's eight and I'm having a kind of game with him. I bought him 50 books. Like his, his native language is Polish, but I bought him in English because I, I'm, his English is fantastic. But what I've realized is he, his reading and writing wouldn't be because he would, he's got it in school. He's done this, he does a small bit, but it's basically up to me to make him better at, at kind of reading and writing. So what I do is I read him the book, then he must read it. So we're having the competition who reads the most books. And, and I mean, we're up to, you know, we still have, we're only three weeks in basically like, and he's at eight and I'm at four. So, you know, and I know, but like- You just, better do some catching up. <laughs> exactly, but, but the, the, the thing is, I'm not forcing him to do it. He wants to do it, you know, and you can do these things in a fun way. And I mean, obviously with what you're doing and, like, do you apply the NLP to the what you're doing as well in the schools? Yes. So um, yeah, that's a great question, and I love that your that your son is is kind of out reading you. And that's you know when 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 we when we create a fire in someone else's belly by and and, and really igniting it through. You know, motivation is intrinsic. We cannot motivate someone else, but we can inspire them and we can persuade them. And then it's like a little hamster in a wheel. And, you know, once once the wheel runs, it just suddenly runs all by itself. It creates momentum and, and then it just goes from there. And I think that's what you're seeing. And yes, I have. So I learned more about NLP um, in my school. So I first built the Montessori school and the first three years, they were rough. I'm not going to lie, right? They were rough. We came from a different country. I tried to do things the German way in the US. That didn't fly so well. I thought, you know, I, I have all of these degrees. I know what I'm doing. I'm an educator. I know marketing. I know how to build a business. I was 34 at the time. And I came into a small community with, I was asked to sit on and serve on the uh, Chamber of Commerce board. And I was around that, that boardroom table with men that were at least 25 years older than me. They were all white old men and this young girl from Germany, right? Well, what does she know, right? And I was, I, honestly, Roy, I was cocky. And um, I built the business for my own kids. I built the business for my own ego as well. And I had to do some looking in the mirror when I had teachers come in, I trained the teachers, I poured into them, right? The Montessori method costs per teacher about $3,000. So I had to continuously add education to these new teachers that were coming because I couldn't hold the, the old ones. So eventually, you know, in the beginning, I said, well, these are, you know, these teachers that come and go, they're dummies. They don't know an opportunity when they see one. When it happened so many times over and over that I went, wait a minute, 
There's one common denominator here, and that's me. That was a very, very bitter, bitter pill to swallow. But at least I was able to swallow it because I think a lot of business people or, or, or a lot of business owners don't even get to that point, right? So I had to look at, uh, do a check-in in the mirror and go, okay, so what am I not learning? What am I doing wrong? Where am I the dummy? And um, again, like you said earlier, Roy, we don't know what we don't know until we go on that journey to find out. So where's my knowledge gap here? And uh, that's when I found you know, NLP, neurolinguistic programming, and I learned how to actually communicate with the, with the other people, aka my, my, my teachers, my staff at the school, so it would, they would understand it. We would, you know, speak the same language. We would have a, linguistically, there was not a problem, but, but on a deeper level, on a subconscious level, I was not able to speak their language, although we both spoke English, but their coded language. And I was not able to persuade them in a way that they were open to, to be persuaded and then actually, you know, do what, what was what we needed to do to serve these children in our school. So I, I started just to learn NLP. And for the ones that don't know what NLP is, it's, it stands for neurolinguistic programming. It's the meta program of our language, of any language. And, and it, it's, it's very, very, it's a tool. It's a communications tool, right? So I started really to pour into myself in, in, in terms of NLP. And I continue to learn more and learn more and learn more. And over the years, like decades in learning, um, I became a grandmaster of this communications methodology. And that made a huge difference in my, in my business. And out of that, I was offered to buy the center uh, of NLP that was established in 1986 by one of the uh, co-founders um, here in Atlanta. So that's how I ended up with two educational facilities. And Roy, you probably can appreciate that with an eight-year-old at home. Children are innocent by nature, right? It's the people around our children that will have an impact that will either allow them to grow and, th and thrive or screw them up and put, you know, just stupid ideas or, or negative thoughts into their head. So when I was offered to buy the center of NLP, I said, this is perfect because I have been, my goal to teach children and educate teachers to teach children, that's established, that's done. The uh, now pouring into adults to become better parents to become better entrepreneurs to come become better thought leaders to become better c-level executives that's that was for me the missing link and now i have both and, uh, just curious because like i've read a few books on the uh, nlp never studied it but is because i like i know what you're doing and it's very positive and i love what you're doing because i see there's so many people i mean i don't i know is it intentionally but Basically, they don't really, you know, teach their children properly, whether it's the food they're giving them, sitting down with them, talking to them, just understanding them, you know, even just going down to eye level with them, you know, instead of looking down and giving out to them. But I've heard of NLP, like, can people use it in a way, like, I don't know, let's say governments or whatever, against us? Can they manipulate us without us even realizing it? So, yes, and let me speak to that. And I'm glad that you asked that, because NLP is a tool. Imagine a carpenter. A carpenter walks around with a, a tool belt around their, their waist, right? Mostly out of leather. And they have all of these different tools are on their tool belt. Well, one of them is a hammer. Now, a hammer can be used to build a cute little birdhouse for your kids or a fence around your house or even an entire house if you so choose to. A hammer, if used with an intention of hurting someone, can also be used to hurt someone or to demolish or to destroy. And in our communication, we do exactly the same thing. Oftentimes, we do it subconsciously like our neighbor she's from italy and she i've heard her you know scream at her little five-year-old and she would say eduardo eh, stupido and i'm like why are you telling your child that he's stupid that's not okay right but she doesn't know better 
for her, it's probably just sarcasm or funny or whatever. But it really, if she see, if she tells her child over and over again that he's stupid, then she is manipulating him into believing that, although that's not her intention. So to come back to your question, the difference between manipulation, which any communications tool can be used to manipulate others. So the difference between manipulation and persuasion is the intention behind it. And that's it. I'm going to say that again because it's so powerful and people need to hear it. The difference between manipulation and, and persuasion is the intention and that's it. So the, 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 how you use a hammer is the intention of what you're going to do with it. And like with Eduardo next door and the mother screaming at him, sometimes that's got a chain reaction. Perhaps when her parents were doing the exact same to her and she just assumes that's normal. Yeah, yeah. And, and you got a really good point. And until because we are all being programmed. I'm going to say NLP again, neuro-linguistic programming. Neuro is, is your brain, right? It's our operating system. It's where our experiences, our thoughts are stored, how we take in information. That we, we, we have little cabinets, if you will, that store that how we store information. So that's our operating system. Linguistic is our communication. And although I'm pointing to my mouth, um, communication is so much more than just the words that we're saying. It is how we're saying it, our tonality, or how we're not saying it, the pauses and the silence. And, and the biggest part in our communication, in our linguistic, is basically our body language, the things that we're non-verbally communicating, the way our eyes speak, the way, you know, we react to something quickly in, in terms of, you know, if we smell something that we don't like, you get this uh, look of disgust or the, this look of frustration or whatever the look may be. So our body has its own communication. It it talks its own language, and it's the biggest part if we look at Albert Morabian and the Morabian communications model. So it's our words, which is the smallest part in our communication, our tonality and our body language. So that's the, that's the linguistic part. The programming part, so neuro-linguistic programming, the programming part is the behavior that we have an influence with our thoughts and our communication on ourselves and on to others. So as people are listening, they're already making up their mind going, oh, what Brigitte is saying, this girl from America. Yeah, what she's saying, that really makes sense. So it's going to show up in the listener, if we would see the listeners in front of us right now, in their body language, in how I am, I'm not programming you, but yet you have made up your mind of how you feel about what I am saying. So there's a, there's a behavior that I am impacting with how I show up, what I think and what I say or not say. So we are constantly programming ourselves with our own thoughts, our own. Sometimes it's like, you know, stinking thinking. It's, they're, they're often not nice things that we tell ourselves. And we wouldn't even allow other people to talk to us like that. And yet we do it to ourselves. So we're constantly programming ourselves. And until we do, don't realize what we are saying to ourselves, it's not going to change. Until we realize that I cannot call Eduardo a stupido, it's not going to change. But it starts out with the awareness of what am I doing and what is the counter program? Because we are constantly programming ourselves and be pro being programmed by others, TV programs, advertisement, thoughts from other people, opinions, our boss, our spouse, our kids. We're constantly being programmed. Now we got to be aware of what's my counter program? Do I want to accept that intentionally or do I have a counter program for that? One thing I've noticed actually is when when we grew up, we started school in Ireland very young, so we were four. We were made kind of sit down, fold your arms and put your hand your mouth. So we had to fold our arms for so long. And I've been at events and they, there's been speakers that would say that people folding their arms are blocking the information from getting in and they're not paying mm -hmm. attention. But for me, I am really focused when I'm sitting down, <laughs> you know, because sometimes people can make an assumption on what they believe is correct. Yeah. 
Yeah. Don't ever assume, you know, I, I teach my, my clients, if you, if you are, and, and I love the, the, the folding the arms story because my husband also likes to sit with his arms folded. It does not mean that he's closed off. It also does not mean that he is focused. It means that he's super relaxed. That is, is that's his relaxed pose. So I, I, I teach I program my clients, if you're not certain, don't jump to conclusions. Ask a question. And when you ask a question, you give the other person an opportunity to talk about themselves and you actually learn more about them. And that that means, you know, asking a question that is an open-ended question, not a yes or no question, of course, right? Exactly. And with uh, Montessori then, because like... I, like I've seen it. I mean, I'm, unfortunately, the education system throughout the world, you know, has been corrupted and it's kind of based on memory. You know, there's nothing about emotional intelligence, just all the different skill sets and everything. And is that something that you kind of apply your conscious with? Because I think you're planting the seed when they're coming in at the three months or six, whatever age that they start, because, you know, they're constantly learning, whether it's just learning how to use their hands and their feet or, you know, whatever age that they, you know, leave you. Well, you know, let's look at the programming again, because the Montessori influences the NLP and the NLP influences the Montessori and they go really nicely hand in hand. So, and that, that means when you use NLP and, and any communications methodology with intention, with positive intention. Okay. So um, Montessori, you know, has been around for 130 years or so now. And Maria Montessori, um, who's the founder of the Montessori method, went out and looked at, you know, she, she grew up in, she was a um, single mom in Rome, Italy. And there were so many kids in the streets of, of Italy, of Rome, that um, were just rebellious behavior, stealing, you know, vandalizing. That's because their mothers were probably saying, Eduardo Stupido. <laughs> exactly. There you go. Now we, now, see, I just needed you to put all of that together. Exactly. So, so she took in these children that most of them were homeless and gave them meaningful things to do. First of all, she she showed them how to take care of themselves, how to bathe themselves, how to mend their clothes. And then she created all of these hands-on materials to visualize and, and allow the hand uh, to uh, man manipulate the materials, to tack with a tactile sense, manipulate the materials, like with little beads. So one little bead is the number one, and then 10 beads is 10, and 100 beads is 100, and so on, so on and so forth. So through her studies uh, with these children and giving them meaningful things to do, she also found, wait a minute, now they have meaningful things to do. Suddenly they're not rebellious anymore. Suddenly they're not frustrated anymore because they know that they can actually move something, that they are a part of a society and that they, that they can contribute to being part of that society. And it made them less frustrated and therefore less uh, rebellious. And um, she wrote, she started writing her books around that. So in our, I'm going to say in our traditional schools, we're being programmed to sit down all day, in your case, fold our arms so we're focused and we're not fiddling around with our arms or doing whatever. We're, we're also in our traditional schools are programmed to write everything and listen to the teacher in Montessori. We're able, we don't have to sit at a table. We can lay on the floor. We can have a mat and lay on the floor and do our work on the floor. If, if a child wants to do that, we can actually learn walking around because some children learn better walking around. Not everyone is meant to lay on the floor or sit at a desk or walk around. We're all as unique as our fingerprint. And Maria Montessori 130 years ago already started implementing that. And I applaud her for that, of really recognizing that it's not one size fits all. That's not what we're meant to be. We're meant to be unique individual people. And when I see that now in my own children, you know, they've gone through the Montessori schools um, ever since they were born. They were both in the classroom with me from the time I came out of the, the hospital and they were in the classroom with me. And uh, just recently, our 16 year old came home from high school and she says, 
you know, I really like Andrew, our new math teacher. I really like Andrew. He's a nice guy. And he wants me to take AP class, which is, you know, like a, a college level class next year in senior year. Um, and I really like math. It's really easy for me. And I said, that's interesting. Why do you think it's easy? She says, I don't know. I just, there's something inside of me. I just get it. And I'm like, hmm, interesting. Do you remember when you were 18 months old, three years old, and we manipulated and maneuvered all of these golden beats in the Montessori classroom? We laid the foundation. She was programmed. She programmed herself by, by, by touching and by manipulating in a very playful way. She made all of these mental images that she's now that are in her, they're ingrained in her subconscious mind that she's now being able to use to visualize the numbers that she's working with in math. Like it's, I wish that more of that method would be applied because I like not all Montessori's unfortunately are like that. There's a lot of them that have been infiltrated as well as kind of set up by the same system. And I, I look at it as the education system where they kind of want them, you know, like you said, just listen, hold your hands, write down, you know, to be working in a corporation that you're not entrepreneurial, that you're not creative. They don't want you like they've taken out art out of a load of schools. They've taken out music and everything. And like, I think that, by actually changing because like I look at all the problems going on in the world and I, I, I believe it's that like we have to do it at local level and I think it's the children because the children can teach the adults because the adults it's the one thing that they is their you know no matter what happens in life their child is usually is priority and a child can actually it can be the other way around you know I can do things to make sure my child you know play chess and stuff like that and all these different things but i know that he can inspire other or you know like you you give the child the right education in a friendly you know manner he can go home and you know there might be a bit of tension there might be just different thought process that they can just learn from him because they're so paying so much attention to the child yeah you know i've had and you're so spot on for, with that roy um i've had parents come to me at my school i'm out of the day day operations now but i had parents come to me and they say brigida how is it it seems like you have a different child in school than we have at home and i said well first of all we set up clear boundaries and within those boundaries the children are free they're free to choose now do they have to you know especially as they go into elementary and middle school do they have to go through math and English and the sciences and all of that? Yes, absolutely. But they can choose. There's not a, okay, so from eight to nine, we're going to have math. And then from nine to 10, we're going to have biology. And then from 10 to 11, we have geography. No, they can choose it, which makes it, it for a teacher in a Montessori classroom, or there's many teachers, it makes it harder, but it's so much more rewarding for the kids and it's so much more rewarding for the parents. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm all for having a positive influence. I'm all against negative programming specifically from parents that don't even know what they're doing because like you said, they're passing down old beliefs. I had a conversation with a, with a client yesterday and I asked her, so, you know, think back to when you were a child, what was one of the things that you continued to hear about money? Cause she's dealing with some miss money management in her life. Think about what have you heard about money uh, when you were growing up? And she says, well, first of all, money is the root of all evil. That's the first thing that she heard. Right. And I said, well, why is that? And she says, oh, it's in the Bible. And I said, well, I want you to look that up if that's truly verbatim what it says in the Bible, because it's not. And then the second thing was, uh, she said that her dad always said, money doesn't grow on trees. And I said, that's interesting because you're right. Money doesn't grow on trees. But if you start looking around, you're going to see pennies all around the ground. When I walk the dog in our neighborhood, there's not one time that I come home that I don't find at least at least one penny. The other day I found two quarters on the on the ground. Money, money doesn't grow on trees, but it's around you. All you got to do is go down and pick it up. It's right there. 
So it's well, the that, awareness. That with a load. I mean, that's an international thing. So many people. I mean, I'm hearing it constantly. Like, and like what, what scares me is they have these conversations with the child next to them and they don't realize they think the child is too young to understand and it's gone straight. Oh, in. no. Yeah. Yeah. And the younger the child, especially in that imprint phase, the younger the child, the more the child just soaks it up. Maria Montessori wrote a book and it's called The Absorbent Mind. It's like a sponge, right? The child does not judge the information that it soaks up. It just goes right in. And then it stays there. In the, in, within our imprint phase, it, it, it goes in and then it just stays there. And the more often they hear it, the deeper it stays. So now with that, with that awareness, as parents, as, as thought leaders, as teachers, we have an opportunity. We have a calling. We have, we must put the right things in. And, and really, you know, and I'm going to pick that word again, program our children where they can become whoever they want to become and not put limitations on them. Oh, you're just stupid or, oh, you're too fat or look at you. You're just a stupid little dummy. Aren't you so cute? You're just a stupid little dummy. No, not even if you put a, a, a cute in front of it, does it make it adorable? So as you see, I could really work that, really no, passionate no, about it. But, but in proper, proper order, like I wish everybody was like that, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, we can, that's how it's gone. A ripple in the water, you know, you, change you know you have your children done right their children are going to be it's not you know this once they get it it's not that they they lose it you know so like yeah you're you're an author as well have you written a book i've written a book i've written all of our curricula i've written all of the curricula for the school of for the montessori school based on maria montessori's writings of course and I've written all of the curricula for the um, Center of NLP. We have taken, of course, the um, original NLP trainings from uh, Richard Bandler, which we fall in direct lineage to. Uh, Richard Bandler and John Grinder are the co-founders of NLP. They're actually mathematicians that deciphered language, which I always find very fascinating and interesting. Um, so, yes, I, and I've authored um, a book and I'm writing a second book right now. And is there many Montessori's that actually follow from what she started? You said it was the 1800s or something that she started creating. Yes. Yeah, in the 1900s. So Maria Montessori, Maria Montessori is the founder or the, the brainchild, if you will, of the Montessori method. Her name is Maria Montessori. And uh, she is, she, she's the, I think she even got a, a Peace Nobel Prize. Her son, Mario Montessori, I don't know if, I think he just passed away a few years ago, but he was the only child that she was carrying and, and uh, built the Montessori method around as she was a single mom. And she said, something's got to give, right? We cannot continue to do school the same way. So, you know, often as educators, when teachers go through university, they learn about, of course, you know, all the social pedagogy um, as, as becoming a teacher. And then they might highlight independent methodologies, teaching, methodology, te teaching methodologies like Waldorf, right? Steiner created Waldorf. Um, and then there's the Montessori method uh, based on Maria Montessori's teachings. So Waldorf and Montessori are, they're both great methodologies and beautiful ways of how we can teach our children, but they're on the they're on complete opposite of the spectrum. So in Waldorf, the child is empty. We must fill the child with information, right? And it's, it's, a, it's always a big group of children and they're all filled with the same information. So that's Waldorf. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's beautiful. My dad went to a Waldorf school. And then we have Montessori where the child is already full. It's already equipped with all of these uh, luscious and beautiful gifts. And, and individually within the Montessori environment, it may uh, blossom and it may come out and it may grow into that, that it's already given from birth onward. So Maria Montessori comes from that mindset of uh, education starts at birth. 
And I would even say education starts before birth because I remember our children, what, when they were in my womb, I would play classical music for them. And um, it wasn't until I really, really hit me of what I was doing during that time. Our children flew before the pandemic, they flew to Germany for the summer months to be with their grandparents. And the first time our little one, uh, she must have been 11 or so, uh, flew by herself and uh, she was at grandma's house and she called me up. It was the middle of the night there and she's just sobbing. She's, she's tired, you know, jet lag. She doesn't know where she is. So she's FaceTiming me and she's just crying, crying, crying. And she would not stop. Like this kid, 11 years old, was determined that she's going to go to Munich to get in a train, to get to the airport, to fly back home. Like there was no wiggle room. Like this is what I'm going to do. I'm flying back home. I've had it here. And I've only been here like, you know, five hours. So I was on FaceTime with her and I was still working. And I said, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to turn on some classical music. And I remembered I still had that baby playlist, a baby classical playlist on my iTunes. And I turned it on and I said, you're just going to have the phone beside your bed. And I'm going to be right here and we're going to stay on. And I'm just going to play music while I work. And you can talk to me and we can have a conversation. And, and she says, yeah, that's a good idea. And then as soon as I hit that, that music, it's like something switched in her. It was the soothing that she must have remembered. This is soothing and she fell asleep. And the next day was a new day. She was like, oh yeah, I was, I was just totally overtired. And you know, it was a new day. Yeah, I, I, I'm convinced as well. Like some people don't pay attention during the, you know, the birth prior to it. Like, and uh, yeah, I mean, I remember when my uh, ex-wife was pregnant, like I'd always talk to the baby, you know, in the belly and just rubbing, just saying, looking forward to seeing you. And I mean, it's, I believe the energy is there. They, they understand what's going on and, you know, you're putting the positivity into it. Yeah. And, and imagine all of the adults now that might have not experienced that, that might have gone through, you know, in their family through Helen Highwater or, or just not had a supportive family system, right? There's still an opportunity for them to learn. The older we get, the harder it is to let go of old beliefs, but that doesn't mean that it cannot happen. It can, like I said at the very beginning, leaders are learners. And when you continue to pour into yourself and when you continue to really want to make a difference in your own life, so it's not perpetuating into the future with your kids or with your you know, nieces or nephews, then you gotta make a break. But before you come to that point of wanting to make a break, you gotta be aware that it's not working for you. And like, I know you do the, the coaching as well. Yeah. You're, are you teaching coaching coaches or are you actually just a coach yourself? Yes. And yes. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I, I, um, I coach coaches. So I certify coaches. I also serve on the international coaching federation board here in Atlanta. And um, so I coach other coaches because I don't know if you noticed, Roy, with, you know, uh, interviewing other people, over, specifically over the pandemic, there were a lot of people that thought, oh, you know what, I'm going to be a coach. And there are too many people out there that call themselves a coach. They, they spend 20 no bucks business. to get the certificate for it. And then they're, yeah, it's, it's scary, actually, how, because they could be putting somebody totally down the wrong direction based on their belief system. <laughs> Exactly. That's exactly the point. And, and that's scary. So, you know, ICF, the International Coaching Federation does quality control on coaches. And if everyone, anyone ever uh, of your listeners ever looks at a coach, make sure that they're certified, that they're not just a, like you said, a 20 bucks. Oh, let me just have a coaching certification. Oh, this is a good idea. Run for the hills. So yes, I I, I coach others. Um, I coach high level executives and business owners, and um, I certify other coaches as well. And because because I had that run down about being the board member of the International Coaching Federation. So for a coach, what do they have to do? Like, do they have to 
study through a certain field or is it that they, they're a coach from different organizations and then they kind of register and they do continuous i don't know anything about i know that i've had coaches on my show and i know there's aspiring coaches hopefully they won't do the 20 dollar route like but uh you might <laughs> advise what's the what's the best procedure for somebody so there are different coaches for different professions right there's the there's the leadership coach and there's the business coach and there's the um, the, the health coach and, you know, there's all sorts of the NLP coach in my case. So there are coaches that are, that can be various or the life coaches or where I, I like to say, I'm just going to put this on a sidebar here. I say, be aware of life coaches because most life coaches that I know don't even have a life or the worst is abundance coaches. Most abundance coaches, abundance coaches that I know are not abundant whatsoever. So, you know, be, be mindful of that. Be, be, be very, be very, do a lot of vetting around that. So to become a coach, you first got to go through hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of very thorough coach training. So you got to go through I can't remember how many, 120, 125 hours of coach training uh, to, to really have a deep understanding of what coaching is and what coaching isn't. Most coaches that have not gone through really thorough coaching studies think that coaching is telling someone. No, coaching is everything but telling someone something to do. Coaching is the art of questioning. So there's the, the hours of the coaching, and then there's the hours, and this is for ICF, then there's the hours that you got to put in and actually train coach with a, a superior, Not that's not the right word, with a, uh, a mentor coach. So you got to put in hours and hours of coaching with a mentor coach, where the mentor coach sits in on pro bono coaching sessions and gives you feedback. So you know the do's and don'ts. And that's very powerful and it's very, and it has to happen because like you said, there are too many people out there telling other people things that they have no business and telling them and passing on their old beliefs or their, or their non-supportive beliefs to others. Okay, very good. And is it a yearly membership or something monthly that people pay for to be part of that? So in order to become an, uh, an, I'm going to speak on NLP coaching now. In order to become an NLP coach, you've got to go through the NLP coaching certification. That is a three-month ongoing curriculum. And then at the end, you get the certification. And then with that certification, you go through ICF. You have a mentor coach. And then you got to put in the hours of pro bono coaching. And then you got to go through the application process through ICF. And you pay that once or you pay that once a year to get that. And then, so there are three levels in that. There's the, there's the bottom level, the ACC, and then the PCC, which is the professional level, and then the MCC, which is the master level. So you go through those three levels and they built upon each other. And then you got to do like a teacher or like an uh, insurance agent or a realtor. You got to put in credit hours every year to uphold the quality of your coaching uh, practice. Yeah, because in uh, PMPs, in the project manager professional, same thing. You have to you know, do so many different things. That's, uh, but I like that, you know, because I mean, especially say if you're looking at a doctor or something that's not continuously learning, and there's some of them that are like that, it's scary. You know, they should be kind of yes. staying on top of their game to make sure that they're giving you the best, you know, advice and, uh, you know, medication or whatever it is to make you better and healthy. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Anyone, anyone that says, oh, I already know that that's a big red flag run. <laughs> exactly. And uh, another thing there, because we're part of a, like the, the, the pod pod match and you know you've got your profile and we've i've got my form that you fill in but there was one of the things i i'd like to v8 communication engine i like i haven't heard of something like that what, what's that about? so v8 communication engine it's a fun um it's a fun way of applying what i teach in nlp because you know what we established earlier nlp is a communications methodology wait a minute where's my this is the card okay so imagine a a v8 engine right a v8 engine has 
it looks like this if if I don't know not some of our viewers cannot see us I'm going to describe what I'm doing so I have four fingers on my left hand and four fingers on my right hand and they're kind of in a V my hands are meeting at the bottom and they're kind of in a V and it's these um, cylinders that are constantly pumping right in order to get the machine to go all eight cylinders have to pump to move forward to get the machine going so in our communication what I said earlier was that our communication consists of words tonality and body language so if we just look at the words because most people think oh our communication are the words that i'm saying no per moravian per the moravian communications model our words are only seven percent in our communication so if we do not get the words right to the people that we're speaking to we're not firing off eight cylinders we might be firing off two and i'll show you how so on the one side, on the left-hand side, we have the value codes. And I have a green card here, which is disappearing a little bit on my green screen. So we have, we have the highly knowledge people, we have the very nurturing people, we have the high action people, and we have the people that like to plan. These are all in, in, our, in our being, in our communication, we are all four types right? These are personality types that are based on values. We're all four types, but we all have one dominant code. So a lot of my clients are high, high knowledge. They want to have all of the information, all of the data. They want to have the big picture to, so they can then do the research. I personally am a very high action. I love just to go and do it and, and, and um, you know, get uh, feedback from error and do it again. So there is no right or wrong. It's just the different personality types that are out there. Okay. So that's the V8 engine. I'm sorry. That's the V that's the, the left side of the V8 engine on the right side of the V8 engine is our, how we store information of how they're represented to us. So when people speak, you can, when your ear is trained, you can detect, are they more of a visual person? They take in information more visually. Are they more of an auditory person? They hear, they're better taking in information auditorily. Are they more kinesthetic? They, they um, are, you know, very feeling kind of people, or are they more digital? So are they more of the thinker? So see, hear, feel, and think. That's the other side of the V8 engine. So now we have four cylinders on the left and four cylinders on the right with the green one showing. Now, because we, we are all four, but we in bo on both sides, we have one dominant code. So in my case, I am in my values, I value fun, freedom, and flexibility. That's my, that's my biggest values. And on the other side, my biggest, my representational system is highly visual. So what does that tell me? That tells me, first of all, who I am, but that also tells me that I am, if I am not learning to speak the other codes in our language, what I said earlier, because NLP is all about communication, I'm only firing on two instead of all eight. And that's a problem because when I don't, if I'm not able to jump in and out of the other codes, I cannot build rapport to someone else. I cannot meet the person that I'm speaking to on the other side because I don't know his or her language. That means that I'm only firing on two cylinders instead of eight. That was a great question. And I don't went into it quickly because no, I teach say, this say, in like no, four days. And, and I've heard of uh, actually some speakers do it as well. And just so that they'll actually connect with their whole audience. You know, they'll cover all of what you've just mentioned to make Correct. sure. Because once you're in, you're in. You don't just kind of go, oh, and then you switch off. You're, you're, you're kind of, once you've realized oh, they've got me. And just, 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 just finally, actually, because... Uh, I see you've been on the uh, stage doing stuff for uh, Harvecker, yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. I was, I was the, I was the fast track female trainer for Harvecker. 
Okay, so you might just tell us a bit about that because I mean, obviously, it shows the caliber of your speaking because you know, I mean, he's internationally well known, and he, you know, you'd have to be at a very high caliber to get in there to do that. So, what, what did you, you know, you'd learn from him? But what were you doing yourself on that? So I was, um, well, I learned from him, but he actually, Robert Riapel and uh, another trainer within the Harv Ecker community saw the uh, opportunity of me speaking NLP and, and, and being, they didn't have to teach me. I already have it. See, when you have, when you're dealing with people that already have the knowledge, then you can build upon that even more. So being on the, uh, on the uh, Harv Ecker stages, I did a lot of um, value in sales. I did a lot of value in these value systems. I didn't even, this, I just developed two years ago or so. I trained a lot in this methodology which is called the bank methodology. And that's where I learned a lot of people and uh, got to travel all around the world. Uh, Harvecker, for the listeners that don't know who Harvecker is, he wrote several books. And I think the most important one or the one that he's most known for is The Secret of a Millionaire Mind. And uh, he wrote a lot of curriculum for uh, peak potentials as well. So listen, I totally enjoyed our conversation. How can people get in contact with you? And is there some place that they'll be able to find out about the V8? Because that's, I'm sure that's of interest to everybody. Because I, I think it's actually, whether you're the speaker, the coach, or you're you know, aspiring to be either, it's something that you should learn. I agree. I totally agree. And if you're just a parent, right, I, you, you need to know this. So how do people get in touch with me? Really easy. You can go to centerofnlp.com, centerofnlp.com, or you can also send us uh, an email to Brigitta, B-R-I-G-I-T-T-A at centerofnlp.com. Um, I have a little gift and you can probably put that in the show notes too, Roy. I have a success patterns uh, checklist, success loss checklist for everyone. Uh, I didn't talk about the success laws at all today, um, but I want to give it as a gift to everyone and I'll, I'll send you the link. It's basically on the center of nlp.com website under uh, trust um, and you can find it right there, but I'll send you, I'll send you the link as well. It's, it's center of nlp.com slash product slash NLP success loss checklist. I'll send it over to you. Thank you very much, Brigitte, and I'll make sure I'll have all the links in both the audio and the video versions. Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much. So that's all for the Speaking Podcast. You can find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com. As mentioned, Brown Bitchute on YouTube. Be sure to give us a thumbs up, five-star rating, and share with your friends. It all helps. Until next week, take care.